I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we explore one of the most hotly contested issues of our constitutional discourse today, namely, do transgender students have a right to access bathrooms consistent with their gender identity rather than their sex assigned at birth? Earlier this month, in light of a new position taken by the Trump administration, the Supreme Court vacated and remanded. In other words, they sent back to the lower courts a case called Gloucester County School Board versus GG, a closely watched case on that very question. The case turns in part on the meaning of Title IX, which is a 1972 federal civil rights law that bans discrimination, quote, on the basis of sex, end quote, in schools. How should Title IX be interpreted? And what's next in our national constitutional conversation about transgender rights? Joining me to discuss this important issue are two of America's leading advocates on the front lines of this debate. Gary McCallum is senior counsel and vice president of advocacy research and innovation for the Alliance Defending Freedom. And Alexandra Brodsky is a fellow at the National Women's Law Center. Gary and Alexandra both filed briefs for their organization in the Gloucester County case. Gary, Alexandra, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Gary, why don't you start us off with the uh, facts of the Gloucester County case? Uh, what was going on there? What was the Obama administration's position about Title IX? And what's the effect of the Trump administration's change position? Sure. It was a case that came up in uh, the summer of 2015. Gigi is a, a female who identifies as a boy, and the school had largely accommodated that perception came up to the point where Gigi wanted to use the boys' restrooms. That's where the board drew the line, seeing that as an issue with privacy. Uh, Gigi was female, using the boys' facility, uh, would be intermingling the sexes, and the, the school properly understood that to be a, a concern about student privacy, so they drew the line there. Uh, the case uh, went against Gigi in the district court. The Fourth Circuit reversed that in favor of Gigi in uh, April of uh, 2016, and then uh, the lower court promptly issued an injunction requiring the school give access to the boys' facilities. Uh, at that point, the case went up to the uh, Supreme Court for the uh, the school district sought a stay of the uh, district court's injunction, and in a long, kind of complicated story, uh, they were able to stay the mandate of the Fourth Circuit and stopped that injunction, and they gained cert. The case went up to the Supreme Court. And then, as you noted, in February of this year, on the 22nd, the uh, Department of Education and Justice issued a new Dear Colleague letter, which rescinded the guidance they'd issued under the Obama administration, which is right at the core of the GG case. Uh, somewhere early on in the GG case, a mid-level bureaucrat had written a letter called the Ferg-Gadima letter, uh, asserting that sex under Title IX included gender identity, which is a, a very different concept than sex. And the appellate court uh, deferred to that and uh, ruled again in favor of the Department of Education, the federal, or excuse me, uh, Gavin Grimm, GG. Uh, so with the Trump administration rescinding that guidance, it pretty much uh, undercut the premise that the Fourth Circuit had ruled on, and the Supreme Court sent the case back down to the Fourth Circuit 
for further consideration. As I mentioned before we came on the air, I heard a hot rumor, not yet confirmed, that the Fourth Circuit will be hearing that case on May 10th. Thank you so much for that. Um, Alexandra, uh, Title IX provides no person shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefit of, or be subject to discrimination under edu- any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Do you want to um, please amplify or add in any way to uh, uh, th- uh, to Gary's description of the GG case, and then tell us uh, why do you believe the Obama administration was correct to interpret uh, Title IX the way that it did, and, and the Trump administration was wrong to rescind the regulation? Sure. Um, so uh, Title IX is uh, part of the uh, 1972 Education Amendments, uh, and what we uh, one of Congress's main purposes in passing that law, which prohibits sex discrimination, was to combat sex stereotypes. Um, and sex stereotypes are uh, ideas about how uh, people should be based on their sex. So an example of a sex stereotype that Congress was concerned about at the time that it passed Title IX was well, women aren't real students, they're not intellectuals, they're just at school to get their MRS degree to find a man to marry. Or women uh, aren't athletes, or women aren't good at sciences. And um, what Title IX requires is that, and courts have made this clear, is that schools cannot um, discriminate against students based on sex stereotypes. Um, And, you know, there's a lot about... uh, Greg's description of the GG case that I would disagree with, but one thing that I think is important, uh, particularly important to note, is that the Department of Education, in its letter uh, clarifying that Title IX prohibits anti-trans discrimination, uh, was not the first body to say so. In fact, there is robust um, uh, case law and a uh, history of anti-trans um, protections uh, by administrative bodies that support uh, Gigi's claim, a uh, correct claim, that Title IX prevents discrimination against him based on his uh, transgender identity. And there are two theories under which um, advocates and courts have uh, explained why Title IX prohibits anti-trans discrimination. So one reason is the sex stereotyping theory that I spoke about, that uh, Gavin is being excluded from sex-segregated spaces uh, like uh, restrooms because he doesn't fit his school's narrow idea of uh, who a boy is, what a boy should be like. And the second one is, in some ways, uh, a more straightforward argument that just kind of says, of course this is about sex. Duh. And an analogy that a district court judge originally put forward and which has gained a lot of traction is an analogy to uh, religious discrimination, where if an employer said, well, I don't discriminate against Jews and I don't discriminate against Christians, but I certainly won't hire someone who was once a Jew who uh, converted to Christianity, we'd say, of course, that's religious discrimination. And what the judge said here is the fact that you're not discriminating against boys as boys or girls as girls doesn't mean you're not discriminating on the basis of sex when you're discriminating against, you know, boys who were once treated as girls. And one thing that I also just want to point out about Title IX is that 
uh, some opponents of trans students' rights have argued that, uh, I think really disingenuously, that Title IX actually requires discrimination against trans students. Uh, and sometimes from their briefs, you would think that uh, these uh, opponents of trans students' rights uh, had, you know, were uh, deeply committed feminists uh, because they talk about how uh, much they want to protect girls in schools. What I'd say is that, um, you know, we, at the National Women's Law Center, we uh, hear calls from students and their families across the country, and we get uh, plenty of intakes from trans students who are being harassed, who are being discriminated by, against by their classmates and their schools. Um, and we never hear from uh, girls or their families who feel threatened by their trans classmates. Um, and even if, even if there were some people who felt that way, anti-discrimination law is very clear that uh, your bigotry is not a reason to infringe the freedoms and the rights of someone else. So what, you know, what we want to say to people who co-opt our cause and try to use Title IX to limit the rights of trans students is don't do this in our name. Great. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Gary, lots to respond to, but among the big points that Alexandra made are that uh, Title IX should be interpreted to include uh, gender stereotyping both uh, as an original matter and also because gender stereotyping is itself discrimination on the basis of sex. Uh, your response to those and other points that you made? Well, a lot of points there. And first off, bigotry and biology are two very different things. When we're talking about sex, we're talking about a biological reality. It's binary, male-female, uh, rooted in our reproductive nature. The reason the terms male and female have a specific meaning in our English language, and really every language that recognizes humans as a reproduction, uh, sexually reproducing species, is they are two parts of a uh, sexually reproducing species. They're male and female. That's the meaning of male and female. When you introduce gender identity, that is a continuum of perceived genders. Now, it may say that that gender is male or female, but it also may be any one of many other really innumerable genders. And it's subjective. It's not objective. And to this day, they've not found any science that dispositively says it is biologically caused. So when I'm talking about sex, I'm talking about male and female as represented in our human reproductive nature. That sexual stereotyping argument comes from Price Waterhouse, a 1980s case with uh, Jane Hopkins, who was kind of a bold, brassy woman up for partnership at Price Waterhouse, and she didn't make partner. And when you dig into the case, they saw some just kind of classic, uh, you talk about stereotyping, she's too aggressive, she needs to go to charm school, she needs to wear some lipstick. Those are sexual stereotypes of the female sex, and they're improperly used as... Um, basically internal evidence by the firm to deny this woman a promotion that she probably merited. The key thing with Price Waterhouse, though, was it was about sex. It was about the fact she was a woman. It had nothing to do with this idea that uh, sex is determined by gender identity. Um, so the, the Price Waterhouse thing is a standard argument from the opposition, and then they dovetail that with a quote out of the Uncali versus Sundowner Services case, which is uh, famously written by Justice Scalia, and it upheld a Title VII claim for same-sex sex discrimination, saying that 
male-on-male sex discrimination is still actionable under Title VII. And a quote they love to use is that uh, Congress doesn't need to specify everything. When it writes a law, it is going to reach what it says, quote, reasonably comparable evils as well. Well, our position is when Congress writes a statute that talks about one sex and the other sex and is clearly addressing, really in context of the 1970s, uh, giving equal access to women for uh, educational and athletic opportunities, it speaks in terms of one sex and the other sex, and they went so far as to say, wait a minute, if we read this literally, we're not even going to be able to have separate privacy facilities, and that's when the implementing regulation came out, 36 CFR uh, 10633, that allows schools to have the sex-specific facilities. So that's clearly in the realm of male and female. When you introduce gender identity and say, well, sex includes gender, I- <coughs> excuse me, gender identity, you run into what Judge Niemeyer, I think, absolutely nailed in the Fourth Circuit opinion uh, that was vacated by the Supreme Court. And he goes through a logical analysis to say that, at the end of the day, the only thing that counts is gender identity. Sex is really erased. As to women's liberation, one of the unique things we've seen on our side, we are a uh, a Christian organization, our viewpoints would probably be characterized as conservative if we wanted to talk politics. We're not a political group. But we've had feminists coming alongside saying, in effect, gender identity actually erases women. And we saw that in startling clarity. Uh, we have three active cases currently where we're trying to stand for student privacy. And this is not about anti-trans discrimination. This is about standing for the privacy between the sexes of each and every student in every publicly funded school. So we're defending a school in Ohio that has the right kind of policy to keep the sexes from intermingling in these privacy facilities. And there is a student who professes to be transgender has intervened in the case. And in the record, it's absolutely clear that this is a male student with all the standard male parts. So we get in this kind of unusual discussion in open federal court where the judge presses uh, Jane Doe's attorney, it's the, the pseudonym of the transgender student, presses Jane Doe's attorney to say, don't you see from the pl- uh, school district's point of view they could consider your client to be a male? And the response on the record in open court from that attorney was, Your Honor, I think it's inappropriate to characterize any part of Jane Doe's body as male or female. So when you talk about sex stereotyping, how are you stereotyping when the very definitional characteristic of male is now irrelevant? It can be male or female. So it's very problematic to say sex stereotyping is going on when gender identity actually supplants sex and replaces it with a fluid continuum of perceived genders. Uh, The sex stereotyping argument is really a non-starter. It is only under Price Waterhouse, evidence of classic sex discrimination. Fascinating. Again, there's so much there, Alexander, that I'm going to let you respond to Gary's point as you think it's best. But among other things, he mentioned Judge Paul Niemeyer's concurrence in the Fourth Circuit, which held this holding completely tramples on all universally accepted protections of privacy and safety that are based on the anatomical differences between the sexes. Uh, And unwittingly, it also tramples on the very concerns expressed by G.G., um, so if you could respond to that and other points, that would be great. Sure. Um, <laughs> a lot there. <laughs> there was a lot there. This is a wonderful discussion. 
uh, in some ways have to uh, get to our first principles about what gender and sex are. And, you know, I'll be honest that um, I don't think that my, you know, definitional attribute uh, as a woman is my uh, is my reproductive anatomy. And I think that there's uh, a lot that complicates Gary's, uh, I think, outdated and simplistic idea of what constitutes gender and sex. Um, so first of all, um, Gary says that sex is binary. It's not. Um, there are so many people who have um, a uh, mix of biological attributes that have been historically considered male or historically considered female, which I think really disrupts that idea. Also, we know that um, our gender is constitutive of so many uh, different points. Um, and is so rooted in our own self-conception and uh, our uh, performance of our gender, how we're perceived by others. And, um, you know, Gary, I think, is wrong to say that Price Waterhouse uh, isn't about stereotyping. It's just about the fact uh, that the plaintiff was a woman. Um, but the, the whole principle behind Price Waterhouse is that a person can't be discriminated against for not fitting uh, their employer or their school's vision of what a good woman is or what a good man is. Um, because the uh, Price Waterhouse didn't say, we won't promote a woman. They said, we want to promote a woman who wears lipstick, who is more feminine, more demure. And similarly, uh, the uh, Gloucester County School Board thinks that a good, to be blunt, that a, uh, a good boy is one with a penis. Um, and that is no more permissible under Title IX. Um, you know, I uh, you know, want to sort of uh, query this idea of privacy for a moment. So, um, first of all, it is not lost on us that, uh, you know, the ADF um, wrote that the right to privacy was invented just a couple months before uh, they uh, started claiming that students' uh, privacy rights were uh, threatened by the presence of trans students. So I think that there's a lot there to unpack. Um, So first of all, I think we just need to remember what high school restrooms look like. So no one is being you know, forced by the government to strip in front of their classmates. Um, and uh, there, you know, I remember being a shy uh, high school athlete and changing in the stalls. Um, so I think that sometimes when opponents of trans student rights say that being, um, that students are being forced to expose themselves in restrooms, that that's really just, that doesn't fit the facts on the ground. Um, but private, this new focus on privacy ha, has come to sort of the alternative strategy after uh, anti-trans advocates uh, tried to make arguments about safety. So they said that we have to keep trans students out and trans people out of single-sex restrooms that correspond to their gender identity because that will pose a threat to others. And that argument soon failed um, because there are no known cases of uh, trans people, or I shouldn't even say trans people, of um, cis or non-transgender people pretending to be trans in order to sneak into restrooms and prey upon uh, little girls, which was sort of the, the story that was being told. And there are, are obviously a whole m- lot of reasons for that, including the fact that 
if you want to enter a woman's restroom as a man, you can just kind of do that. Um, but uh, so there are no, no there are no documented cases of um, people pretending to be trans to commit violence. But there is so there is such unbelievable violence against um, trans people. Uh, in restrooms, both when they use the restroom that corresponds with their gender identity and when they use the restroom that doesn't correspond to their gender identity because people think that they're in the wrong bathroom. Um, And, you know, I think that uh, I find it worrisome how uh, privacy has come to be sort of a uh, buzzword to fill in for this idea when the facts didn't support it. Um, Because... I think we see really dangerous parallels to uh, race segregation uh, and other forms of discrimination um, where there were ideas about who are the pure people worth protecting and who has to be kept away from them, regardless of empirics. Um, And, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, I think that the court's job here is uh, to see through uh, those kind of pretextual arguments um, that are used to support anti-trans discrimination. Thank you for all that. Um, Gary, please respond as you think best to the privacy points in this fascinating discussion, but let's um, m- maybe uh, anchor the discussion by, let me uh, ask you to uh, Imagine how the Supreme Court would interpret Title IX. Today, both of you have talked about the Price Waterhouse case where the court held that treating someone differently because they didn't conform to gender stereotypes was a form of sex discrimination. We also have the Johnson Control case where the court held that people with childbearing capacity are unfit for certain kinds of traditionally masculine work, and that's not a permissible basis for discrimination. So this is obviously a cutting-edge, open question, but how do you imagine the current Supreme Court would interpret Title IX in light of the cases you've been discussing? Well, of course, the current Supreme Court's going to have a ninth vote pretty soon, I hope. Uh, it sounds like the confirmation hearings are going pretty well. I would hope uh, that both factions of the, the Supreme Court do what every or, uh, a good judge does, which is interpret the text of the uh, statute at hand and not read and write things into it. Um, there are some startling comments that Alexandria has made, and, and I do actually want to agree with her on a couple points. One, uh, I disagree, actually. We have copious reported instances of uh, persons impersonating or being professed transgender and going in restrooms and, uh, for wrong purposes. That's not the point of this. It is uh, You don't have to do that to go into a restroom and cause problems. So the safety issue is a real concern, but it's not the primary concern. In terms of privacy, this is not lawyers dreaming this up. These are young girls and young boys and their parents coming to us, and I have long since run out of enough attorneys to file all the cases we need to. We're being swamped with reports from coast to coast about young adolescent, pre-adolescent children going in and discovering a member of the opposite sex, not just in the restroom, but in the locker room. These policies don't stop in a restroom. Once you uh, open that privacy facility to the opposite sex, you're stuck opening up your overnight accommodations on school trips, your locker rooms, all those types of facilities are going to be open. The argument that a restroom is somehow only private inside the stall, well, if you flip that around, what that says the common area in a restroom is somehow 
now a public area. It doesn't matter who's in there. And that's not the case. You go in a lady's room, you're going to have an expectation of privacy when you walk in the door, not just when you shut the stall door. So that's a logical place to draw that line. Turning back to the Supreme Court, though, um, and looking at Price Waterhouse, a number of times the opposing briefs brought out this argument of saying, well, of course it's about uh, gender nonconformance, and that the chief example they love to use was that uh, Jane could marry Jane lawfully under Obergefell on Sunday and then go to work and be fired on Monday. And that was wrong in their view. In that case, they were talking about sexual orientation instead of gender identity. But the point I want to make is Title VII doesn't carry cover marital status discrimination. And once you start reading things into statutes that aren't there, all of a sudden Title VII goes from protecting sex as male and female to protecting uh, sexual orientation, to protecting transgender status, to protecting marital status under their theory. So if you want those kind of laws, go to Congress, pass the law, and let the courts interpret it. Don't read it into a federal statute. It's stunning to me that a law that came out of the 1970s, and I was uh, more than old enough to know what was going on politically at that time, it was woman's liberation writ large. I often think that Title IX was in a way kind of a, a poor man's equal rights amendment that was given to the feminists as a way of kind of pushing them away from pushing the ERA. It was a great stride forward for women, and that's where all the opportunities for athletics came out, so many opportunities for equal education for women. And then we turn around and see this very same policy being used to force a young adolescent high school girl to accept a boy disrobing next to her in the locker room. That's a privacy violation, and that points also to a very big gap between how uh, Alexandria and I look at a locker room. We look at it as squarely being within Title IX and its implementing regulations to provide privacy based on real physical differences between boys and girls. She sees it, or I would argue she sees it, and I'll tell you why, as a tool for affirming an individual's psychological self-perception of their gender. I have looked at every non-sealed affidavit I could find from every case currently being or recently litigated on the transgender issue. And what I uniformly see are these uh, young students who perceive themselves to be of the opposite sex saying, I need to use the facility not for privacy, but be, to be affirmed, as Gigi said, as a boy, or to be affirmed as a girl. The point of those facilities is not psychological affirmation. The point of those facilities is privacy. We absolutely should extend to these children who are so troubled compassion, support, counseling, uh, and certainly facilities so they have full privacy. They're not comfortable being in the community facility, their birth sex, Absolutely. Give them individualized facilities, which when I was a high school student, I mean, if you got an individual facility, you might as well be the principal. That would be a rare privilege. The point is protect the privacy. There are other ways to support and address the question of confusion over gender identity, but violating the privacy of virtually every student in a school by intermingling the sexes is the wrong route to take. And I don't think the Supreme Court except for the most 
robust advocates of a living, breathing, ever-morphing constitution are going to be able to look at the text of Title IX and say, gosh, it really does include gender, which is a, a Mobius strip or a continuum of innumerable genders that are self-perceived, subjective, you cannot objectively prove it, and that's somehow the same thing as the word sex in Title IX. That's a real stretch for a, a textualist. I think it's a stretch for almost any judge that's interested in the meaning of a, a written law. Great. Uh, uh, well, that uh, nicely frames the point. So, Alexandra, Gary says uh, the current Supreme Court, uh, he believes that many of the justices on both sides are unlikely to interpret Title IX to include gender identity because it was originally intended to protect discrimination against uh, women. Uh, what is your response to that and to some of the other points he made? Yeah, so um, the legislative history simply doesn't support the contention that Title IX was uh, drafted and passed simply to protect women alone. Um, the legislative history, as we detail in the brief um, that we filed on behalf of more than of ourselves and more than 20 other feminist organizations, talks about how Congress was concerned um, about sex discrimination, including sex stereotyping in general, and explicitly mentioned that those protections would include boys as well. So um, that uh, I think that some of those claims just um, don't bear out. Um, there are a couple of other points I'd like to make, and they're sort of um, address different parts of your argument, so forgive me for jumping around a little bit. But first of all, I want to say that um, Gavin Grimm is not a girl. And to make arguments about how uh, a student who is forced uh, to, you know, in your words, to spend time with a trans student um, is being uh, forced to spend time with a member of the opposite sex um, is disrespectful to those students um, and also sort of presupposes the conclusion um, that your particular narrow vision of what gender is is the one that was uh, uh, that the courts should enforce through Title IX. So, you know, I really prefer just out of respect for those students that we uh, not talk about trans students as being gender confused, that we not talk about them as being troubled, and that we uh, refer to them by uh, the sex that they identify with. Um, you know, I also want to say that I thought that the comment about having an individual facility would be a privilege uh, was particularly insensitive. So I want to talk about the stakes here a little bit. So uh, the uh, litigation about Title IX's coverage of transgender students isn't just about bathrooms. It's also about whether schools have a responsibility to uh, support and respond to students who are harassed because they are transgender. And I've heard some conservatives um, say, well, all students are covered by Title IX. But what they mean is that trans students would also be protected by, let's say, sexual harassment protections based on, the gen based on their sex, but not protected specifically from anti-transgender discrimination. Uh, and we know that trans uh, students are subject to tremendous rates of violence, of harassment, of discrimination. Uh, many uh, uh, consider suicide or commit suicide because of the terrible hate to which they are exposed. Um, and speaking specifically about bathrooms, um, 
Gavin and other plaintiffs across the country um, have uh, explained in their complaints the stakes of not being able to use the restroom that corresponds with their gender identity. And that reflects what trans students across the country experience. That being excluded from the right restroom is stigmatizing. It points out to other students, many of whom easily accept their trans classmates, um, as being different, as being dangerous, as being a threat to their, uh, to their peers. Um, often being forced into a different restroom uh, makes students so un- trans students so uncomfortable that they simply don't use the restroom at school at all, lead- leading to serious medical issues. Um, so, you know, while, you know, I think that it is, you know, we can have a um, respectful debate here, I think that that has to be, uh, we have to be on the same page about the very serious stakes. Uh, and finally, I just want to say that I think it's a mistake to conflate um, case law about lesbian, gay, and bisexual rights with uh, trans rights. I'm sure that we disagree on the LGB of LGBT2, um, but I think that arguments conflating the two um, are uh, misleading because the uh, logic of why uh, sex discrimination uh, laws uh, would uh, apply, uh, differ in the case law, is, is different. Thanks so much for that. Gary, let me broaden the question uh, to the constitutional one. Uh, Some advocates argue that the Equal Protection Clause uh, of the Constitution forbids schools from requiring students to use bathrooms consistent with their biological rather than their gender identity, and they base that claim on uh, the Obergefell decision recognizing marriage equality where Justice Kennedy talked about the Constitution promising liberty to all, including liberty to define and express their identity. Uh, what do you make of that constitutional argument, and how do you think it will fare before the courts? Well, it's going to be an interesting argument for sure. It, it's one that was uh, briefed in the GG case. The court didn't get to it. It went off on the deference and Title IX discussion. Um, and unsurprisingly, I'm going to say the court should go the right way and not find an equal protection violation. I mean, one of the basic premises of equal protection is that similarly situated people are treated similarly under the law. And I, I know you're trying to get to the constitutional question, and that's where the court will go. But the underlying premise of sex equaling gender identity is simply not true. I'm being accused of taking this narrow view well, that narrow view is taught in Biology 101, where male and female is determined at the point of conception genetically, and then the natural development uh, flows out from that. Are there true intersex uh, condition children? Yes, absolutely. Uh, human development is not a perfect process. You do have disorders of sexual development. You will have people born with ambiguous genitalia. That's not the issue that's being brought to the courts today. That's not the court issue that's going to go up to the Supreme Court on the constitutional issue. That's a medical problem to be determined through medical procedures. It's not the psychological condition. I mean no disrespect in identifying a girl as a girl, but a male or a female is determined at conception, not somewhere after the point by a mental perception. So that's my only point there. Uh, Generally in court, we avoid using pronouns, and we simply use whatever their pseudonym is. So we say doe a lot. Um, Going back to the Supreme Court and the equal protection argument, you've got to find a degree of equal situation there. And when you've got cases like um, 
U.S. versus Virginia, which was the uh, sex integration of the Virginia Military Institute, even then the court noticed where it was absolutely improper to segregate women from the men and that educational opportunity and forced integration of that military training institute, they still said it's entirely appropriate to preserve separate facilities where the physical differences actually count. Those physical differences are male and female rooted in our reproductive anatomy. Absolutely, the mere reproductive aspect of our bodies, the physical parts, don't determine um, how we play out as men and women. There are many factors that go into whether you're more or less masculine as a man or more or less feminine as a woman, but that's not altering the underlying sex. And even if you go to the point of trying to repudiate your innate sex by going to surgery, cross-sex hormone, going through these life-changing, permanently sterilizing procedures, that still doesn't change the innate nature of your person. And I'm simply respecting that innate nature uh, when I refer to male and female in that context. So on equal protection, I, you're going to see the same kind of arguments come out of uh, this is sex stereotyping, this is conflating sex with gender identity, so of course the transgender girl, they will say, and the cisgender girl are similarly situated. The problem is in elementary school and high school, almost without fail, they are truly the opposite sex in every respect. They have not had any kind of surgery yet to mask their underlying sex. So uh, the presumption of uh, the, the win, you might say, is when Alexandria says repeatedly in different ways that gender identity and sex are one and the same thing. They're not. Sex is binary. Sex is determinate conception. I've been through this before. Gender identity is a subjective perception. So these things mean that these students are not um, similarly situated. It's exactly the analysis that Judge Niemeyer made on the appellate court. It's very similar to the analysis the district court made in GG. And I would think the Supreme Court would come around and say that there is a difference. And again, it's not to exclude transgender students from all legal protection. The answer for them is in Congress, not in the courts. Courts should not be reading a um, status which is completely contrary to the status which is actually protected into the law. And again, uh, we've got the Women's Liberation Group in New Mexico coming alongside with us. The Heritage Foundation had a fascinating panel with everything from a Jewish lesbian feminist to a conservative Christian Catholic uh, all coming together on this point that, end of the day, gender identity discriminates against women. So is it a tough political question? Yes. Is it a tough social problem? Yes. Is it a tough individual problem? Yes. But we need to respect the privacy and dignity and safety of all students. And to do that, you do what Title IX calls us to do, and that is provide sex-separated facilities so boys and girls don't intermingle. Um, I really... Uh, the notion that we have to constitutionalize keeping adolescent boys and girls apart in locker rooms, hotel rooms, and restrooms is astounding. And it shows just, I guess, how far the progressive agenda will go down a road of personal autonomy at the expense of community and respect for all people's rights. And it's fascinating to me to hear um, 
folks like Alexandria here really say it doesn't matter to have a disrobing boy next to a disrobing girl. If that girl has a problem, it's her job to leave the girl's locker room and find somewhere else to change. And that's an astounding position uh, from my perspective uh, for someone supporting women's rights to take. It's These girls are the ones who are calling us for help. Uh, and we filed a, a suit with uh, allies of ours in Pennsylvania just a few days ago in Pennsylvania where the opposite took place. Young man comes in, starts changing, turns around, and there's a half-naked girl behind him, which is upsetting. He goes to the principal, and the principal says, basically, get over it, act natural, it's the way the law is, and that's not true on several accounts. That's why that principal is now a defendant in the lawsuit. Thanks very much for that. Alexandra, um, it would be wonderful if you could now focus on the constitutional question. Uh, Gary says this is an extreme stretch of Justice Kennedy's language of autonomy, in particular his language about the right of people to define and express their identity, to extend it to transgender rights. By contrast, others, including Scott Skinner Thompson of NYU in Slate, said that Justice Kennedy's language in the Obergefell decision is a firm foundation for uh, transgender rights. How do you believe that Justice Kennedy would rule on this question, and how do you think the Supreme Court would rule on the question of extending the Equal Protection Clause to protect transgender rights? Sure. Um, and first, I just wanted to say, um, Gary, my name is Alexandra, not Alexandria. Um, but uh, and a, a couple, you know, I think it's very hard to have this conversation when we can't uh, sort of proceed from the baseline of respecting, um, you know, students' identities and not repeatedly uh, and publicly misgendering them. Um, but, you know, so there was recently, I think that the constitutional argument is a strong one. Um, there was a recent opinion from Judge Hornick um, in the Pine Richland case, uh, and this is in the Western District of Pennsylvania, uh, where the judge found that a... Uh, that uh, two trans girls were likely to succeed on their equal protection claim. Um, and I think that there are two ways to uh, imagine what a successful equal protection claim uh, would look like. So one is understanding, uh, as I do, as courts do, as scholars do, um, uh, the word, uh, the, okay, over. Um, one way to understand the argument is that uh, intermediate scrutiny applies uh, to discrimination against uh, trans students um, as part of the scrutiny that we extend to sex discrimination. The other is to understand uh, uh, the Equal Protection Clause as an anti-caste um, protection, uh, as uh, seeking not to create... Uh, subordinate groups of people based on their identity, and particularly fixed identities. Um, and, uh, you know, anti-trans discrimination, like making trans students use separate facilities, does exactly that. Uh, so I think that it's a uh, strong argument. I think it is consistent um, with Justice Kennedy's focus on dignity and the interrelatedness of uh, freedom and equality. You know, I also just want to flag that I found some of Gary's logic to be inconsistent. So uh, the lawsuit that ADF has filed claimed that trans students um, pose a, a threat 
either physical or uh, some kind of abstract privacy threat to their classmates. Um, but he seems very comfortable with a uh, congressional fix to that. Um, so I, you know, I think that that just shows that the concerns about um, the the harm of including trans students uh, are really just pretextual, and that has to be the case because it just simply doesn't reflect the reality on the ground, either about trans students or about single sex basis, um, you know, or about the violence and harassment that occurs in uh, between. Um, you know, cis boys or cis girls. Uh, thanks uh, so much for that. I'm going to ask a practical question, and then we'll have closing arguments. Uh, Gary, if the court were to rule in favor of GG, what would the effect be on school bathroom facilities and locker rooms across the country? Would there have to be uh, uh, unisex uh, facilities as well as the ability of people to choose the facility consistent with their gender identity and how would that work for locker rooms and by contrast if the court rules against uh, GG um, what would the practical effect be? Uh, a couple points and first I do apologize for adding that I dear name Alexandra it's my Scottish accent I guess getting in the way of my uh, pronunciations but I do apologize um, if the Supreme Court rules on the GG case and says that um, these facilities need to be open to transgender students. I think the battle goes on because what was not taking place in the, the Gloucester case were students with direct privacy violations. And if you're standing semi-naked or naked next to a, a student with opposite-sex genitalia in a public school locker room, that is a privacy violation. It's not just my heated imagination going on here. Our cases have those direct uh, privacy violations. We've got more cases coming, so I think there will be a second round of litigation, and the Supreme Court at some point is going to have to say, are we going to use these locker room facilities to affirm a confusion of genders, or are we going to provide true privacy for boys and girls? She mentioned the Price Waterhouse case, which is one of the most wonderfully muddled decisions I've ever had the displeasure of reading in my life. And one of the things he talks about, the judge talks about in his analysis, is immutability. Well, here's the challenge. In one of our cases, we have three intervening students who profess to be transgender. One of those students in their affidavit, or actually their parents' affidavit, speaking for them, uh, talks about how they were born female, then along, I think it was about middle school or early high school, for about six months, they identified as genderqueer. And now they identify, at least at the time of the affidavit, as a, a boy. And my point is, a gender continuum is not immutable. And when you're talking to administrators like uh, about this, and you're looking at this litigation, they're using this continuum of genders to affirm a binary perception. It's always about being male or female. Well, what about the poor administrator or the poor Supreme Court justice that has to figure out how you can be immutable when you start out female as a biological fact you go through a phase of gender identity crisis, I guess, or, or um, perception where you're gender queer, and then you settle for at least a while on being more masculine, as the affidavit says. That's not an immutable characteristic. And in pragmatic terms, how does a school administrator deal with that when it's not only the three of male, female, gender queer, 
But as the expert in our Palatine case on the other side says, it's male, female, or something else, and that something else can be anything else. Um, on the Congress thing, and, and I'm guilty of maybe not completing the thought here, uh, if Congress enacts a law that requires unisex restrooms and the intermingling of sexes, that's not to say we won't still go after for exactly the reason I just said. When you have males and females together, uh, that is a privacy violation. That's why under the Fourth Amendment in prisons, even in prison, you have a right to a limited degree of bodily privacy, meaning that if you have female guards watching men uh, showering, they've got to put um, screens up to partially block these people. And that's in a penal incarceration situation. So what we're seeing here is our opposition basically saying that boys and girls in public schools have even less rights than a prisoner does in a federal penitentiary. These privacy rights are important. They're important to every student, and they need to be protected. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Alexandra, your uh, final thoughts on the pragmatic effects of a decision for or against uh, GG for restrooms and uh, locker facilities and other facilities across America. Sure. Um, you know, and I want to I want to note again that the uh, GG doesn't just concern um, facilities. Or let me actually say that differently: the ramifications of GG won't just be felt in single sex spaces like restrooms. So, if uh, the court in GG or another similar case affirm that. Um, Title IX and or the Equal Protection Clause prohibit discrimination against trans students. That will be a powerful tool in protecting young people from harassment and other forms of discrimination that pose an obstacle to their learning. And that's exactly the kind of harm that Congress sought to prevent when it passed Title IX, to make sure that gender never stops someone from learning and thriving in school. And, you know, I, I can't tell you what it would mean to be able to talk to uh, the young uh, boys and girls that call us um, and saying that their school is excluding them from uh, facilities, is policing what they wear, uh, is tolerating harassment against them simply because they're trans. I can't tell you what it would mean to be able to tell them the Supreme Court has just said that the law protects you. The Supreme Court is on your side. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that uh, having uh, trans students uh, be able to continue using single-sex facilities as they already do without incident is going to lead to the, you know, Phyllis Schlafly predicted uh, gender chaos um, that, you know, invites the demise of America. Um, you know, Greg has uh, conflated um, unisex bathrooms with trans-inclusive bathrooms. And while I think that there is a case to be made for unisex bathrooms, whether we allow trans students into restrooms that correspond to their gender identity or not uh, doesn't answer that question for us. Um, you know, what happens if the Supreme Court... Um, doesn't stand with trans students. You know, I think that, uh, I hope that we, I really hope we don't have to see that play out because um, trans students always already face such uh, hate and um, discrimination and disrespect 
that I worry that a Supreme Court ruling would uh, embolden uh, bigots who uh, not only refuse to respect their gender identities, but think that their bigotry is a reason to mistreat others, that others have to accommodate their bigotry. Um, but I, you know, I will say that if that is the case, that uh, allies across the country, like the National Women's Law Center, um, will be there to uh, work with students to help um, make sure that they are uh, safe and supported. Um, and I hope that Congress would, in that case, take immediate corrective action. Um, but I am I'm confident that the court, um, I'm confident that the court will recognize that sex has never just been about biology. And you mentioned Johnson Controls earlier, and I think that that's a really important case that we uh, focused on in our amicus brief. And in Johnson Controls, the court said that uh, we we can't know who a person is. We can't classify them based simply on their reproductive anatomy or capacity. And, uh, you know, the truth, as we wrote in our brief, is that sex discrimination law requires that people be able to determine their own destiny, uh, their own fate, their own character, um, and the meaning of their bodies. And uh, I am confident that the court will get and give, um, give shape to that principle. Wonderful. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely substantive and educational discussion. Uh, Gary, in just a few sentences, if that's possible, and I know it's tough, please tell our listeners why you believe that Title IX does not protect a right from discrimination on the basis of gender identity. Well, we're a nation of laws, not a nation of self-perceptions, and the law is very clear. It was written to, uh, it was uh, initiated largely to protect women. Alexander is correct. It protects both sexes. It is a sex non-discrimination law, and it protects against invidious or irrational sex discrimination based on one sex or the other. That's binary, that's male or female. So a very simple, plain reading of the text of Title IX and the underlying uh, CFR is that Title IX protects sex as sex. And that's it. It does not include gender identity, which is, again, a, a concept which is foreign to the binary of sex. Uh, I guess the simplest way to illustrate that is under gender identity theory, if I was to develop a late-blooming perception, and it does happen, uh, according to their experts, 40, 50 years old, you can wake up and, and start perceiving yourself as a woman, I can walk into a locker room looking, acting, talking exactly as I am and proclaim myself a woman if I have that honest subjective perception. And I emphasize subjective perception. That's the only evidence. On that basis, how can you possibly say anything about sex stereotyping? Sex has become meaningless at that point, and that's what happens when you include gender identity. At bottom, this is simple statutory interpretation. Does Title IX protect sex as a characteristic for equal access to education? The answer is yes. Does the underlying CFR allow for separating facilities to protect privacy uh, based on sex? The answer is yes. As soon as you inject gender identity, you're writing a concept into the law which was never contemplated, does not fit within the text, and is antithetical to the purposes of Title IX. It leads to 
an exceptional absurd result. So I'm confident that any court reading the text and interpreting the text of the statute is going to come out in the right place and say sex is sex, male or female, and that's the end of the analytical equation, really. Thank you very much for that. Alexandra, last word to you. Please tell our listeners as succinctly as you can why you believe that Title IX does protect individuals from discrimination on the basis of gender identity. I often hear from opponents of trans students' rights, and particularly from male opponents of trans students' rights, how they imagine um, that girls and women would feel in a space with, uh, tr- uh, with how, sorry, they often uh, try to imagine how cis girls and women would feel in a space with trans girls and women. And uh, as a woman who works at an organization dedicated to uh, the rights and well-being of women, um, I can say that we, uh, we fight for cis and trans women alike. And in doing that, uh, we have a powerful tools uh, in the form of decades of case law and regulations that understand that sex is about more than simply our genitals, um, that sex is about uh, how we uh, move through the world, how we understand ourselves, and, uh, and how we choose to express ourselves. And uh, I am confident that the court will come down on the side of making sure that all students can learn, uh, regardless of their gender, uh, just as Congress uh, hoped when it passed Title IX. Thank you so much, Alexandra Brodsky and Gary McCallum, for a truly substantive, illuminating, engaged, and educational discussion of one of the most hotly contested statutory and constitutional questions of our time. Uh, you've educated all of our listeners, and all of us are grateful. Alexandra, Gary, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you, Alexandra. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCDR. And sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. It is so great. It contains all of our weekly constitutional content. Nicandro is sitting here with me, and he is doing a bang-up job editing it. And I want you to sign up for it because you will learn so much from Constitution Weekly. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, ladies and gentlemen, we the people listeners, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. I want you, please, to consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Go to the website, constitutioncenter.org, to sign up and learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.